The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Since the beginning of the church, Christians have speculated about the end times, about the end of the world. Right after the resurrection of Christ, Jesus' apostles thought it was going to happen then. And so in Acts 1-6, they said, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the Jewish version of, is the end of the world at hand? They wanted that kingdom to come. Jesus, as you remember, said, it's not for you to know the times or dates. The Father set by his own authority. Is this the end of the world? That's the question generation after generation have asked. And frequently the question has been linked to current events, to things that have been happening on the world scene. Perhaps that was no more true than in the year 410, August 24th, when the walls, the defenses of Rome were breached and Rome fell to a pagan power. It was an earth-shaking moment in history when the Visigoths under Alaric swept through the streets of Rome. They actually treated the city relatively gently. But it was just a shocking moment. Rome, the eternal city, has fallen. And in a cave where he was fasting and praying and writing, near Bethlehem, St. Jerome, when he heard about it, began to weep. And he said, the world is rushing to ruin. The glorious city, the capital of the Roman Empire, has been swallowed up in one conflagration. He thought the end of the world was imminent. But across the Mediterranean Sea in North Africa, in a place called Hippo, there was a different man, Augustine, St. Augustine we know him as. The great bishop of Hippo in North Africa took an entirely different view of the fall of Rome. After Rome fell, he finished his masterpiece called The City of God. And it was a defense for Christianity against paganism. The pagan Romans thought that Rome had fallen because of the influence of Christianity, that their their military strength had abated, had weakened because of Christianity. And so he defends Christianity against paganism. But even more than that, he defends the view of history that comes from the Bible that we are not stuck to current events. We are not linked to any human city. There are, in effect, in history, two cities. There's the city of God and there is the city of man. And the two of them are competing on infinitely unequal terms. We're not dualists. We don't believe that good and evil battles out on equal terms. But they're just battling it out for the central place in human hearts and affections. At the core of the city of man is one driving spirit. And that is love of self extending, extending to contempt of God. That's the nature of the city of man. Love of self that quenches any concern for the glory of God. The city of God has exactly the opposite spirit. Love of God that extends to contempt of self. And those two are battling it out all the time on the stage of human history. And so the story of human history is this, what some have said, a tale of two cities. It's the city of God and the city of man. And here in Isaiah 2, we have it in this kind of language, competing high places. We have the high place of the Lord's temple established in the first five verses. 
And then we have all these other human high places, these lofty towers and these high walls. And the two are in direct competition. You've got the city of God and you've got the city of man. And they are competing for your affection and for mine. It's God versus the world, and that's what's going on in Isaiah 2. And it begins with a vision of peace in verses 1 through 5. The mountain of the Lord's temple exalted. And it starts in verse 2 with this expression, in the last days. In the last days, it says, these glorious things are going to come. And so this is a constant fascination that we have, as I mentioned, with the end of the world. I will not ask how many of you have read any of the Left Behind series. I don't want to know, okay? But I know this, that 65 million copies have been printed in that series. I know that they have a website, leftbehind.com. I'm not mentioning it that you should go there. I'm just saying they have one. I'm saying that their books and movies and even a computer game, the Left Behind computer game, if you can believe that, are sold at Walmart and you can go get those. Behind the intense interest, though, the success of that series is this question, are we living in the last days? Are these the end times? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is absolutely clear and unequivocal. Yes, we are most certainly living in the last times. We're even living in the last hour. 1 John 2.18 said this, Dear children, this is the last hour. Of course, that was written in the first century A.D. It's been the last hour all of this time. Hebrews 1 and verse 2 says, In these last days God has spoken to us through His Son. We are in the last days. Are we the final generation? Now, that's a different question. And Jesus already told us that it's not for us to know the times or dates. He's given us instead a way by which, what we call the signs of the times, that we can measure the progress toward the end of the world. For me, one of the greatest is in Matthew 24, 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so we're watching the progress of the gospel and linking it to the end of the world. Now, Isaiah gives us a different sign, and that is the exaltation of the mountain of the Lord and the streaming of the nations. Look what it says in verse 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. So it begins this vision with the exaltation of the mountain of the Lord's temple. Now, mountains are frequently associated with religions and paganism. You've got Mount Olympus and Zeus and all the pantheon of gods up there in Greece. There's Mount Meru in Hinduism, the spiritual origin, so they believe, of all the Hindu deities and their ultimate destination. You have Chomolungma, the goddess mother of the world, that's Mount Everest. And in that tribal religion, they believe that all the deities came from there. Who could say until, until 1953, no one got to the top. And so there it is. There are these incredible mountains and people imagine the deities are up uh, at the top of them. But this is not any of that. This isn't a pagan mountain. This is the mountain of the Lord's temple. That's what it says. And this is not Mount Sinai where Moses received from God the Ten Commandments, the Old Covenant. You have to go actually further back in Jewish history to Genesis 22 when the Lord tested Abraham and said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him up. On one of the mountains I will show you. And he goes there to Mount Moriah, and he's just about, as you remember, to offer Isaac up, and the angel of the Lord stops him. But you remember what he said in Genesis 22:14. Remember how Isaac said, here's the wooden fire, but where is the sacrifice? And he said, God will provide the lamb. And there was this saying, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. 
you advance in redemptive history, you have David, of course, taking the Jebusite city, Jerusalem. It was up on a mountain. It was called Mount Zion, the elevated place. It was difficult to get to, easy to defend, but David conquered it. And so it became the city of David, the fortress of Zion. And there, David wanted to build a temple. Uh, Nathan the prophet revealed it would not be him that would build that temple, but it would be his son who would build the temple. Now, I tell you, the scripture is infinitely deep. What son was Nathan referring to? Was it Solomon or was it Christ? My answer is both. Solomon built a physical temple. And he built it right there, it says in Chronicles, on Mount Moriah, the same mountain. And so on the mountain of the Lord, it was provided for that's where Jesus died. That's where he shed his blood. I mean, in space and time on that very mountain, it really happened. It was physical. It was a place. But we learn from Scripture that the tabernacle and the temple were just dim reflections, just shadows of a reality that's up in heaven. A heavenly reality, a place where God would dwell with man and where man would be forgiven of his sins and that we would dwell in close fellowship, close partnership. And anything earthly, anything physical is just a dim reflection of it. And so when Jesus shed his blood on the cross, on that physical mountain, on a physical cross, shedding physical blood, the physical curtain in the physical temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And we learn from the book of Hebrews that a new and living way has been opened up for us spiritually into the very presence of God. And at that moment, there was no longer any need again for animal sacrifice. Animal blood was not needed. In fact, it's not welcome and never will be again. That has been fulfilled in Jesus. And so also has the physical temple been fulfilled. It was just a pattern of the heavenly one anyway. So what do I believe then? Well, I believe, as it says in Hebrews 12, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. We've not come to a physical mountain here in Isaiah 2. But rather you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. The mountain of the Lord's temple then is the spiritual temple established by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember how Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Speaking of his own body, speaking of the place where sinners would be reconciled to an almighty God. That's the temple I think Isaiah 2 is mentioning here. And on this mountain, God provided a sacrifice for sins through Christ's blood. On this mountain, the Lord heard the prayer of the great high priest, Jesus Christ, on our behalf. And on this mountain, God swallowed up death forever. This is the mountain that's established as chief. Now, Jerusalem was the physical starting place for the spread of the gospel. It started there in Jerusalem. And so it says in Luke 24, 47, Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So it started there in that physical mountain, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. But from that physical place, the word of the Lord would spread to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 3. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And in this way, the mountain of the Lord's temple is established as chief among all the spiritual high places of the earth. It's the place of Jesus. It's the place where he shed his blood. It's the place of the cross. It's the place of free access to Almighty God, where we can see him face to face, where we can be in his very presence. That's what's established as chief among all mountains in the world. And so what do we have as a result of that establishment of this place, this high place of the Lord's glory, of Jesus' finished work on the cross? Well, we have the streaming of the nations. And it's contrary to nature. 
Look what it says. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. So here's this river streaming uphill. It's running contrary to nature. Do you all know what the Continental Divide is? Continental Divide is a place where it's a mountain ridge where the water on one side of it will flow to the Atlantic and the other side will flow, let's say, to the Gulf of Mexico or uh, to the Pacific if it's the Pacific Divide. Water just doesn't flow uphill, friends. And from that point down, I don't think there's ever been any water that's flown from, flowed from the Pacific up to the Continental Divide. It just doesn't work that way. So this is a streaming of the nation that's contrary to nature. It's surprising, it's shocking, it's something only God can do. Why in the world would the nations all be looking to Jerusalem? It really isn't that impressive a city. Why would all nations all over the world be caring about what happened at that small place in that time 2,000 years ago? It's because of the greatness of Christ, the greatness of the gospel, contrary to nature. They're streaming to Jerusalem, not physically, we're not, we're not on a pilgrimage like the Muslims go to Mecca. We don't know need to get up and go. You can go there if you like. A number of people have been. We love to see the pictures. I'd love to go myself. I've never been there. But if I die never having seen physical Jerusalem, I'm all right. But I want to see the heavenly Jerusalem. I want to be there because that's the true place. And that's where I'm streaming in my heart. That's where I'm en route to. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I, I would have told you for I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come and take you to be with me so that you also may be where I am. That's the streaming that's going on. I want to be with God. That's the streaming that's happening here. And so, the mountain of the Lord's temple is established. Now, I know that there's a millennial view that says that Jesus will reign for a thousand years physically on earth from Jerusalem. He'll establish his throne there. He will settle any disputes. People will go and see him physically. I think that that may be. Personally, I am millennial in my theology. We're going to talk about end-time stuff this summer. So if you're interested in all that, on Wednesday nights, this is a plug for Wednesday nights. You need to come. What are the odds, contrary to all nature, that you actually will go to church on a Wednesday night in the summers? But you just might if we're talking about end-time things. So we can kick around the millennium at that time. But I understand that some people really focus on this passage as a view of the millennial kingdom. But I just think it's so much more glorious to think of a kingdom that will never end. It doesn't last for a thousand years. It lasts forever and ever. And forever we'll be looking for the law coming from Christ's mouth. Amen? And so I think even the millennialists will say, we look forward to aspects of that going on throughout eternity. And notice what it says here in verse 3. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. This, in my mind, speaks of the exponential spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The very ones who are coming are saying, come, to those who aren't coming yet. They're en route, they're traveling, they're in a journey, they're moving on, and they're finding those that aren't moving or are going the wrong direction. They're dead in their transgressions and sins, and they invite them to come. And so this is the spread of the gospel. We begin life, therefore, as targets for evangelism. And God willing, we end life as evangelists ourselves, reaching out with the gospel. And so it says at the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22:17, the spirit and the bride say come. So we're in cooperation with the Spirit of God, inviting people who aren't coming yet to come. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. 
And as we're coming, we're hearing the law coming from the mouth of the lawgiver, Christ himself. Verse 3 again, he will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The gospel is meant to have a transforming effect on every area of your life. How you think, how you move in this world, what you do with your money, everything. And the law is coming from Christ. He's speaking the law to us. His laws are written in our minds and on our hearts, not external to us like engraven in tablets of stone. Christ's law of love comes and drives out strife between former enemies. Christ's law of holiness comes and causes us to put sin to death. Christ's law of obedience causes us to come and walk in obedience to the spiritual laws written now in our hearts. And so the gospel ministry at the center of it, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The law streams forth from this spiritual temple, from the mouth of our lawgiver, Jesus Christ. And what's the result? Well, lasting peace, friends. Not man-made, but God-made. Look at verse 4, very famous verse. He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The result of the gospel, the result of the establishment of the glory of God through Christ is lasting peace between people. Peace between nations, something that has not been achievable in 5,000 plus years of human history. We have not been able to establish lasting peace between the nations. And we will not. Only the Lord can do this. We learned this in the 20th century, didn't we? There was World War I, the war to end all wars. 37.5 million casualties. A very high price to pay to end all wars, but worth it if you're actually going to do it, if you're going to end all wars. And at the end of that war, they set up the League of Nations under President Wilson to kind of do that, to be sure we didn't have war anymore. Well, we know how successful that was, because in 1939, Hitler invaded Poland and began World War II, just a few decades later. And the price tag for that one was 72 million killed in that war. Greatest carnage of any war that there has ever been. Right after that, of course, they established the United Nations so that we wouldn't go to war anymore with each other. We would think 72 million would be a small price to pay if we never went to war with each other again. And so the top priority of the United Nations, October 24, 1945, was to keep peace throughout the world. Well, some analysts have counted. I don't know how you count a war, what's a war, and what's just a skirmish or a border issue, but over 150 armed conflicts between nations since that time. I believe that lasting peace is impossible in this world because of the wickedness of human hearts. If you don't change the heart, you're not going to change politics. You're not going to change history. The heart must change. And what does it say about the human heart? In Isaiah 57, 20 and 21, it says, The wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Bottom line, wicked people don't naturally beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears and pruning hooks. They don't. They make more swords and they get ready. Because they want to win. They want to dominate. You know, I think about the image of the, the, um, the sword being beaten into a plowshare. I get the picture of the hammer and sickle. I don't know why. Actually, there isn't necessarily a biblical background. I tried to establish that. But I do know this. In 1959, the Soviet Union donated to the United Nations a big bronze statue called We Shall Beat Our Swords into Plowshares, patterned after this biblical verse that they didn't believe in. But they did believe in the theme of world peace, and they thought that it could be established by their means. 
Uh, the statue's still there in the North Garden of the United Nations. Some big muscular guy beating his sword into a plowshare. Of course, at that point, the United States and the Soviet Union were in negotiations with each other, trying to establish a lasting peace between their countries in the midst of the Cold War. And so they came up with the McCloy-Zorin Agreed Principles. Their first goal, get this, that disarmament should be general and complete, and war is no longer an instrument for settling international problems. Sounds good, especially in the middle of a Cold War. Of course, within a year or two, there was the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that went right out the window. Actually, as I look at these principles, I think about the letter that was signed between Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler after the Munich Accord, which sold Czechoslovakia up the river and just about guaranteed World War II would come. Appeasement had run its course. Neville Chamberlain thought they had peace in our time. Remember, he's waving this Munich Accord. Um, and they, they signed a letter, Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler signed the letter, quote, We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. Doesn't that sound wonderful? Don't you just cheer in Trafalgar Square, Square that we're not going to fight the Germans after all? Of course, within a year, they, were, they declared war on Nazi Germany. The reason is the human heart hasn't changed. Hitler was a wolf. He wanted the whole world. That was the whole issue. True lasting peace comes only in one way. The saving work of Jesus Christ on the wicked, selfish, angry, prideful, murderous, covetous, power-hungry human heart. Only if the heart changes will war be obsolete. And he's the only one that can do it. It's his unique glory. You know that hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Listen to this. Crown Him the Lord of Peace whose power a scepter sways from pole to pole that wars may cease and all be prayer and praise. His reign shall know no end and round his pierced feet fair flowers of paradise extend their fragrance ever sweet. Isaiah 2, 1 through 4 is a clear prediction that someday war will be obsolete. Amen? It's going to be gone. To the glory of Christ, though, not to the glory of negotiating, not anybody who's going to win the Nobel Peace Prize. Nobody's going to take credit for it. It's going to be Christ's work and His work alone. But it's going to come. Now, it ends with an exhortation. Isaiah gives an exhortation to his own people concerning these things. Look at verse 5. Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But then, tragically, he spends the rest of the chapter saying how much they do not walk in the light of the Lord. And not just Israel. Israel is just a kind of a test nation for all of us. We wouldn't have done any better. It doesn't matter what your tribal ancestry... You can't imagine you would have done better, your ancestor would have done better than the Jews. They represent us all. But he starts with the Jews and he shows very plainly that they refuse to walk in the light of the Lord. He begins with Jacob's shame in verses 6 through 9. Jacob abandoned to idols. Look at verse 8. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. He begins by lamenting the fact that Israel is abandoned by God. This abandoning, he readily admits, is justified because of Jacob's great sin. Israel has committed two great sins, according to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 2.13 My people have committed two great sins. Number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water. And number two, they have dug for themselves their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They are two sins, turning away from God, the satisfying, all-satisfying all stream of living water, and deciding to dig out your own cisterns and drinking from your own water source. 
Those are two related sins. John Piper identifies this as the shocking twofold root of all sin. The forsaking of God and the desire to find ultimate satisfaction and pleasure from some created thing. This is what Piper writes. Tell me then, what is evil? The definition of evil... That which appalls the universe, that causes the angels of God to say, no, it can't be. What is it? What is evil? It is looking at God, the fountain of all satisfying living water, and saying, no, thank you. And turning instead to the television, to sex, parties, booze, money, prestige, a house in the suburbs, a vacation, a new computer program, and saying yes to those things. That is insane. And it causes all heaven to be appalled, according to Jeremiah chapter 2. That's what they were doing. They were turning away from God and turning to idols. Anything made to satisfy apart from God. And so, three times in the section, Isaiah says that Israel is full of something but not of God. Full of something, but not what God provided. We were created dependent. We come into the world, our lungs are empty, they need air, okay? Our stomachs get cyclically empty, they need food. We are dependent on God, and that physical dependency is meant to teach us something spiritually. We need to be filled with God. We need to be filled with Him. But look at what they're filled with. They're filled, first of all, with superstitions. Look at verse 6. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like Philistines and clasp hands with pagans. Created to have minds full of true religion, based on the revelation of God. Instead, what do they do? They turn to pagan religions, mystery religions, with their secret rituals at night, and their orgies and their lustful things. They turn to these secret pagan religions, superstitions from the East. Secondly, they're full of silver and gold, not of true wealth. Look at verse 7. Their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Now, God had specifically forbidden the kings of Israel, to accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. In Deuteronomy 17 and verse 17 and following, it says, speaking of the king, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Rather, the king was to take and write for himself a copy of the book of Deuteronomy and read it every day and fill his mind with God as his treasure. That's what he was supposed to do. Well, then you get Solomon, and I think I can kind of sum up Solomon's life in these words. Solomon accumulated. And it's in there a number of times. Solomon accumulated wives. He had lots of them. Solomon accumulated silver and gold. The trading ships came and every year brought 666 talents of gold. He was swimming in gold. It was so much that silver meant nothing in those days. Well, all the kings after him, though not achieving that level of glory and wealth, yearned for it. They wanted silver and gold. This is idolatry, it's greed, materialism, a lust for wealth, and the pleasure of possession, of ownership. Also full of horses and chariots, not of true power. Look at verse 7. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. Just as bad was the Jewish accumulation of military power. Again, from Deuteronomy 17 and verse 16. The king, moreover, must not acquire great amounts or great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. But in 1 Kings 26, 10.26, it says Solomon accumulated 
There's that word again. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses. What is the problem here? Well, God did not want the Jews relying on their military strength for their protection and their defense. He wanted Gideon stripping his army down to 300 so that, so that God would get the glory for the, for the deliverance. Later in Isaiah, we'll see King Ahaz turning to Assyria instead of God for protection. He was angry with David for numbering the fighting men in Israel. He did not want their hearts trusting in their own military prowess for their security. This is a great temptation in our day as well. A terrible temptation. In 2006, $1.1 trillion were spent by the nations of the world on military things. By world governments, $1.1 trillion. The United States spent 48% of that. As a matter of fact, if you add up the military spending by nations number 2 through 11, we exceed that. Nation number 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5, we exceed the next 10 nations in military spending. We spend close to $650 billion a year on the military. It's easy then for our nation to be tempted into thinking that therein lies our national security. It does not. Every military system has a chink in the armor, something that God can find. And an arrow can be shot at random and fly through the air and find that chink in the armor. That is not our security, friends. It does not come from those things. National security is hearing and obeying the Word of God. That's it. And you Christians, you know it, don't you? It comes in following Christ, in knowing Him, and in the prayers of the people, not in how much money we spend. We would not be a little more secure if we spent another hundred billion. It just doesn't work that way. The most powerful force in the universe is God. Isaiah 40, 15. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. The most powerful thing in the universe is God. If we're in a right relationship with Him, we need fear nothing. But if he's against us, then who could be for us? Israel had abandoned the true power and settled for military power. Psalm 33, verse 16 through 21 says, No king is saved by the size of his army, and no warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all of its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait and hope for the Lord. He is our help. He is our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. Now that's what a secure people can say and should say in prayer. And finally, the land was full of idols, not of the Lord. Again, verse 8 and 9. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So man will be brought low and mankind humble. Do not forgive them. Now, as I've said, anything you look to for ultimate peace, ultimate significance, ultimate security, or ultimate happiness, other than the Lord, is an idol. That's what it is. But the Jews went beyond that. They actually made physical representations. They actually made figurines. They made physical idols out of material stuff. It's amazing arrogance, you know. It's one thing to trade God for some heart idol. It's another thing to go ahead and think of God in your mind and make up a physical manifestation of your God and then bow down and worship to it. And that's what the Jews were doing. And I believe, in the end, all idolatry is really a form of self-worship. 
The artisan makes his image of God out of his own skill, out of his own ability, and then he honors and worships it. Listen to Isaiah 44, 13. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with a compass. He shapes it in the form of man, of man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. What's he then worshiping when he bows down? He's worshiping himself. It's human arrogance, idolatry. And notice, by the way, the land is full of idols. One isn't enough. You're not going to just have one idol. Once you have one, you're going to have many. The more, the better. I've been to India. I've seen idols everywhere. I've been to other countries. Once you have one, in in Japan, every street corner, there was an idol. They were everywhere. You're not going to just have one. But the Jews were like this. Jeremiah 2, 27 and 28. You have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. And for all of these reasons, God had abandoned his people to judgment. That judgment... Isaiah now seeks to describe in verses 12 through 21. Terror, the loftiness of created things, humbled. The day of the Lord is proclaimed in verse 12. Look at it. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. Simply put, the Lord has a day. It's coming. It's called the day of the Lord. It's coming. There have been a lot of little days of the Lord that have given a picture of it, like Noah's flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. Those have been pictures, but that's not the final thing. The day of the Lord is coming. The Lord has a day in store. Now is the day of rebellion. Now is the day of sin. Now is the day of arrogance. Now is the day of man. Then is the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is described basically this. Lofty things will be humbled and brought down. That's it. The purpose of the day of the Lord is justice. For anything in God's universe to compete with him is abhorrence. It is the greatest injustice. And so he's going to bring justice. He's going to level the idols. Now, pride is the root of all of this. It's the root of Satan's sin. There's a sense of lofty elevation. Upwardly mobile was Satan, not satisfied with his position. He wanted to go up. Go up in the universe. And so he says in Isaiah 14, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. I'm going up where God is. Well, the sense of elevation, of loftiness, is of majesty, where God dwells. Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. There's the greatness, the elevation of God. Satan wants to compete, so he goes up. We joined him in that rebellion. We actually decided to go upward. We decided to elevate ourselves, to become prideful and to go up, to follow Satan. We joined Satan in that upwardly mobile pride. And so, here in Isaiah 2, he says, all of that is coming down. Look what it says in verses 12 through 18. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted and they will be humbled, for all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. He uses natural lofty things like cedars of Lebanon and oaks of Bashan and towering mountains and high hills. He uses man-made lofty things like lofty towers and fortified walls representing military pride, trading ships that represents commerce, stately pleasure vehicles representing pleasure. All of these are human idols. They're all lofty in their own estimation. They're coming down. 
on the day of the Lord. All lofty things set up against the knowledge of God, all of his rivals are coming down. In the day of the Lord. Now, post 9-11, we as Christians should not be shocked at how quickly something lofty and high can come down. How quickly it can happen. I will never forget it as long as I live. The Twin Towers, how quickly they came down. It was a shock to me. The whole thing was a shock to me. Not because my theology was shaken by it as though somehow my theology were tied to the Twin Towers in New York. It wasn't. But just that it could come down that quickly. Were you not shocked by that? But we read about the future fall of all of the city of man. Babylon has fallen. Has fallen. In one hour, your doom has come. Revelation 18.10. It's all coming down. And why? So that the Lord alone can be exalted in that day. Isaiah 2.11. The eyes of the arrogant man will be humbled and the pride of men brought low. The Lord, low, the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Isaiah 2, 17 and 18. The arrogance of man will be brought low and the pride of men humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. Well, what's the result of the Lord's humbling? What's the result of the day of the Lord? Well, sheer terror, fleeing in sheer terror. Look at verse 10. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from dread of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. And again, verse 19 through 21. Men will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He rises to shake the earth. In that day, men will throw away to the rodents and bats their idols of silver and idols of gold which they made to worship. They will flee to cavern, caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from dread of the Lord and the splendor of His majesty when He rises to shake the earth. And note the dual effect. An abandoning of the idols and a fleeing for terror away from God's presence. The idols are revealed to be worthless. They're nothing, and so they're thrown away to the rodents and bats. People then try to hide from the Lord in the splendor of His coming and His majesty. This is picked up in the book of Revelation. After the sixth seal is open, the sky turns black and the stars fall from the sky. And every mountain and island is moved from its place. And this is what it says then. Then the kings of the earth, Revelation 6, 15 and following. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? That is the day that's coming, friends. It is coming. Sure, as any of these words here are true, the day of the Lord is coming and everything exalted against Him will be leveled and brought down. And hiding? There's no sense in hiding. There's no way to hide. Jeremiah 23, Am I only a God nearby? declares the Lord, and not a God far away. Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and all human arrogance will be brought low. So what is the application? What is the invitation? Well, two words, stop and come. Those are the two words in the text. Look at the very last verse, verse 22. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Stop trusting in man. Stop trusting first and foremost in your own righteousness. Stop trusting in yourself. 
your own religious works, your own good things, that you're basically a good person. Stop looking to yourself to save yourself. You cannot. You can't survive that day. So stop trusting in man who has about a breath in his nostrils. And don't look to other people. Don't build your life on them. A spouse, children. Don't rely on the military to keep you safe from terrorism. Stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. I believe that there needs to be military strength and power, but behind it, and we can support this from the scripture, but behind this is the power of God. And if God's power is against it, you lose. You lose. So stop trusting in man. Don't trust in yourself. Not you or I. None of us can survive Judgment Day without Christ. So stop trusting. There is a hiding place. There's a place to hide. And that refuge is Christ. Flee to Christ. That's the come part. Come to Christ. Come and trust in Him. Look to Him. His shed blood on the cross. Look to Him and continue to look to Him. Come, O house of Jacob, verse 5. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. There is no greater, more beautiful light than the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Come to Christ and trust in Him. Now I know that I'm preaching to people who, for the most part, have come to Christ. So you're already coming. You're not there yet. You've come to Christ. You've been justified. You've trusted in Him. And that's all happened. Your sins are forgiven. You've, you've been adopted into the family of God. But are you done with your journey? Are you there yet? No. So keep on coming. Sanctification, that internal journey. Keep on making progress. Keep following the law of the Lord by the Spirit of God. And as you're coming, you know what you ought to do? You ought to say come to some people. You ought to invite some people. I don't mean just to church. Do that. And you can pray for me that I'll be faithful to preach the gospel. But I think you don't need to have them come to, come to church. I had the privilege of sharing the gospel this week with a young man, a Brazilian hand surgeon. I was in awe of what he could do. And we were talking, and it was a tremendous connection to the gospel. He came from Brazil, Roman Catholic background, knew very little of the gospel. Just some basic rudimentary facts. 45 minutes. He couldn't escape. What could you do? I mean, sitting next to me, there's nowhere to go. All right, so 45 minutes of listening to me. All right, but I try not to force anything. We had a fantastic conversation. Brought him to the point where he realized that his righteousness could not survive Judgment Day, where he needed Christ. He wasn't ready to make that commitment yet. His name is John. I pray for him. George Whitfield said, God forbid that I should travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without speaking of Christ to them. Do you travel a quarter of an hour with people and not ever say anything? Do you ever say, come? Come to Christ? That's our job. It's our privilege, the two infinite journeys, that we would be journeying en route and then get people started on their journey as well. Invite them to come. One final thing. One of the great dangers of Isaiah as we read it is because it was so long ago, a different culture, we're going to think it's sin out there. And I hate that. It isn't sin out there, friends. Pride is what this chapter is all about. I have come to realize it's my greatest sin struggle in life. There is no greater. It hurts my marriage. It hurts my relationship with people. It hurts me as a pastor. It makes it hard for people to give me helpful criticism. It, it, it makes it hard for me to let others go first, to deny myself and serve. Pride, 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 pride. It's my problem, and it's yours too. I don't say this because I know specific things about you. It's just because I know the human race, and I, I've seen it. Pride is your biggest problem. So don't read through Isaiah 2 and say, those lofty towers out there. Humble yourself. Find pockets of pride in your own life. Tear down those towers yourself so the Lord doesn't have to tear them down. Because if you're a child of God, He will delight to keep you humble and simple. And if you're building up the tower like the Tower of Babel, He'll tear it down. So you ought to humble yourself. And if you do, 
If you humble yourself and give Jesus the credit for all things, then he will raise you up. Close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.